We turn in God's Word this morning back to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Last Lord's Day we considered the parable of the tenants. This morning it will will begin in that section and then uh, read verses 13 through 17 as uh, Jesus is presented with another question. We see his marvelous answer. But we're going to begin at verse 10. So we're sort of at the end of that parable of the tenants. Jesus is, in a sense, summarizing that parable. We see their reaction. And then we move on into the next encounter. Mark 12, verse 10. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and that you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow our heads in prayer and ask for God's blessing. Our merciful Father in heaven, we once again come unto thee in this morning hour. Thankful for your word, thankful for this portion of your word that we could open and, and learn about. We pray that thou wilt be with Pastor Bob, Lord, and give him the words to say. Open our hearts and open our minds so that we can have that word enter in and that we may apply this to our lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Seeing they come with a question, uh, the outline takes the form of three questions as well. First of all, who came to Jesus? Who is it that is coming to Jesus in the passage that is before us? Secondly, what question did they ask? Thirdly, what answer did Jesus give? That's pretty obvious as you read through those three things, but there is perhaps something deeper going on than, than we see on the surface here. So first of all, who came to Jesus? What question did they ask? And what answer did Jesus give? One way of answering the question, who came to Jesus, 
is to say this, two opposite groups. Two opposite groups. We are listed here, they are listed for us. They are the Pharisees and they are the Herodians. They are two opposite groups who approach life from two completely different perspectives. These people are not in agreement. They're never going to sit down at a table and have a nice, calm meeting together. They disliked one another with a passion. The Pharisees represent that which we would consider to be of that day Jewish nationalists. They are seeking independence. They want the burden of Rome and the power of Rome to be thrown off. They would like nothing better than to be a free and independent nation once again. They are secretly supporting the zealots who are indeed uh, seeking to do this in very violent ways but don't want to be associated with the violence. But secretly, they're giving them the head nod, saying, keep at it, guys, keep at it. We appreciate that which you're doing, and we hope someday you to be successful. Now, the zealots were seeking to do this really just on a political level. The, the Pharisees have at least a, a vested religious interest. They want to see the nation return to a theocracy. But they are through and through nationalists. On the other hand, the Herodians are cozy with Rome. They want Rome to extend its control. They don't mind being under Roman government at all. They would be quick to say, hey, Rome, you better look out for uh, Pharisee so-and-so over there. Uh, here's, a, here's a group of zealots that you might want to be looking at. They would be quick to turn in those who might oppose Rome. They would be quick to be the tattletales of the day. Not only because they just like Rome, but they like the culture of Rome. They're indulged in the culture of Rome. They see nothing wrong with that which Rome, in all of its hedonism, has brought in. They are thoroughly secular in their viewpoint. Now, they're still Jews, not necessarily Jews by religious practice, but they're Jews by race, and they see all sorts of financial benefits to this cooperation with Rome. The Pharisees represent a very narrow, conservative Judaism. They represent perhaps the narrowest of narrowest views. They have, and, and this is what Jesus takes them to task for on many occasions, is they've out-conservativized, I'll improvise the word, the Scriptures. They've gone beyond the Scriptures. They've become so conservative that their conservatism is on the other side of Scripture. That still happens today. People who want to make the Bible say more than what the Bible says. 
people who want the Bible to be more controlling than what the Bible actually is. That was the Pharisees. That's why they have all those sublaws and sublaws and sublaws. And that's why Jesus is constantly saying, guys, you're going beyond the scriptures. But that's their mindset. They're at least concerned about the word. The Herodians are concerned about the world and fitting in with the culture and fitting in with the society. Two opposite groups. We could say the liberals and conservatives. If, 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 if we wanted to say it you know, in political terms, it would be Republicans and Democrats coming to Jesus. They don't agree about a thing. Two opposite groups are approaching Jesus. That's who comes with the question. But interestingly, they come, even though they are these two opposite groups, they come with one question. So one way of saying this, who comes? Two opposite groups, but it's also two united groups because they have a common enemy. They have a common foe. They share a common hatred, and that's of Jesus. Now, they hate Jesus for two opposite reasons, okay? but sometimes it's rather interesting in life, those who make, as we use today, strange bedfellows, those who sometimes cooperate on something, we kind of look at it and say, what do those two groups have in common? Nothing, except perhaps one common cause. Sometimes it's rather interesting to listen to the political dialogue of our society because we have radicals on one side, we have radicals on the other side of the political spectrum. They do not agree at all about their, their, their political views, yet on some issues they are agreed. They are agreed at what needs to happen, but they agree on it for two different reasons. That's what's happening here. Both want Jesus dead. The only solution to the Jesus issue of their day, the Pharisees say, is he needs to die. The only solution to the Jesus issue, as far as the Herodians are concerned, is he needs to die. So they come together. Notice how the passage flowed. They, that is the religious leaders, verse 12, are seeking a way to arrest him, but feared the people. They, those religious leaders, perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. And they sent to him. So we still got the same basic core of people, the religious leaders, who are now sending these two groups. And what is their means of trying to get at Jesus this time? They come with a question. They come with a question. But the first thing we need to note is that it's a question of insincerity. They don't really care what the answer is. They just want Jesus to answer. This is not a burning issue in their heart. 
This is not some raging concern that's, that's facing them in life. This is not something that, that has been gone through study committee after study committee and somehow they're trying to sort out and trying to arrive at some sort of answer to this problem of taxation. It arises out of insincerity. And we see the insincerity because of the flattery that is used. Listen to their words. One, they hate the guy. They want to kill him. We know that's in the background. Listen to the address. Teacher, rabbi, uh, the one we're willing to submit to, the one we're willing to listen to. Really? Far from it. They could care less. They're not going to listen to Jesus. They're not going to submit to Jesus. This is just flattery. It's insincerity. We know that you are true. Really? If Jesus were true, why aren't they listening to him? Why aren't they following him? Why aren't they disciples? It's full of insincerity. And you do not care about anyone's opinion. It's interesting. Their statement is true, right? Jesus is a teacher. Jesus is true. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And we know he doesn't care about anybody's opinion. They're stating a truth, but they do not believe the truth. It is insincere. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. How insincere can they get? You truly teach the way to God? They were seeking a way to arrest him. They want to kill him. But you teach the way to God. But they want to end his life. They want to end his teaching. Full of insincerity. And it's a trap. They have come not with the desire to hear an answer. They could care less if Jesus says yes or no. From their point of view, they win either way. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, you see, the way they're setting it up is that, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? If Jesus says no, the issue of killing Jesus is taken care of because Rome will do it. Because Jesus will be seen as an insurrectionist. He will be seen as a rebel. He will be seen as one who is involved in a revolt. Rome already has its eyes, brows up after that triumphal entry. They're already on high alert. What's up with this guy? What's happening with this guy? And now, on the height of religious fervor of the Passover... He's preaching no taxes. Rome is going to sweep up, sweep in with their soldiers. They're going to arrest him and he's going to be crucified. Matter done with. If Jesus says, is it lawful to pay taxes? And he says, no, Jesus is a dead man. However, if Jesus answers, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes, what's going to happen? The crowd that has gathered, those who were chanting along the way, 
Those who see Jesus as the son of David, who is the new king, who is going to come and deliver them from these hated Romans, if he says yes, they're going to desert. They're going to fall away. The crowd will go away. What happens then? Well, go back to that previous verse, verse 12. They were seeking to arrest him, but what? Feared the people. Why? Because there's a crowd. What if there's no crowd? Then we can arrest him, and we can charge him, and we can have him killed by Rome. So from their perspective, see, this is just a trap. Either way, he answers, and silence is not an option. To say nothing is to get both sides mad, right? See, if he says nothing, if he just walks away, Rome's going to go, oh, he's a rebel, see? The crowd's going to say, oh, see, he's cooperative with Rome. Silence isn't an option. We got him. Yes, we got him. No, we got him. It's a question of entrapment. Thirdly, it's a question of lawfulness. It's interesting the way they phrase this, right? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful? That that's becomes the question. And the question is, what do they mean by that? What do they mean by lawful? Is it right? Is it legal? Is it moral? The, the question in and of itself is rather vague, isn't it? Because on one hand, you could say, is it lawful? Well, yeah, Rome has a law. It's lawful. So is that what you mean? Do you mean, does Rome have a law that requires you to pay taxes? Well, yes, Rome has a law. It is a law. On the other hand, is their question more a religious question? Is it moral to pay this tax? Is it scriptural? Is this something that God's people should do? It's a question of lawfulness, but they have not defined the lawfulness. So on the surface, even the question itself is a failure. And even the word they have chosen to come to Jesus with is part of the entrapment, for they have not clarified what they mean. Thirdly, the answer then that Jesus gives Look with me at verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy. The answer that Jesus is about to give is an answer from, the, from knowledge. Jesus is fully aware of the situation. He fully knows their hypocrisy. He fully knows that this is a trap. He fully knows how insincere they are. 
Sometimes I have heard people say that the answer Jesus gives is so clever. Like, ooh, wasn't expecting that one. Ooh, that one comes to me out of right field. Ooh, quick, let me think, let me think, let me think. Oh, and he comes up with an answer and everybody goes, wow, what a great answer. He knew before the foundations of the world the question they were going to ask him. He knew the answer before time. None of this is a surprise. In fact, Jesus has orchestrated the whole thing. He has brought this confrontation about on purpose. This is by his will. All that is happening in this week, all that is taking place, he knows. He knows the cross. He knows the beating. He knows the crown of thorns. He knows the scoffing. He knows the fist. He knows the spitting. He knows the denials. He knows the kiss. He knows the betrayer. He knows it all. And he is causing it to take place. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves us. He is dealing with this flattery, this insincerity, this entrapment. He is dealing with this as the one who is the king of kings, as the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, as the one who is Christ. It's the one who is God. How does he tolerate and put up with it all? Because he loves you and me. The answer that Jesus gives is not clever. It's not ingenious. It's based upon knowledge. His knowledge of the events, the knowledge of his life, here upon earth, it's based upon his sovereignty. It's based upon his wisdom. It's based upon his holiness. Secondly, the answer he gives is a coin. But knowing their hypocrisy, verse 15, he said to them, why put me to a test? I know what you're up to. So bring me a denarius. And let me look at it. Now, what are they bringing to him? They're bringing to him a small silver coin that weighs 3.8 ounces. Now, in case you're wondering, a dime weighs 2.68 ounces. A nickel weighs five, not ounces, grams, excuse me. Okay, you're going, wow, what kind of nickels do you have, Pastor Bob, right? Okay. So it's, 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 it's grams, not ounces, okay? So it, what did I give you? 3.8 grams. The dime is 2.68. The nickel is 5 grams. So it's a coin that weighs somewhere between a dime and a nickel, okay? Parents, you can go home today at dinner table, give your kids a dime, give them a nickel, say the, the, the one Pastor Bob's talking about here weighs somewhere in between that. It's a silver coin. It's that which is 
generally given okay, for a day's wage. If you're an average day laborer in Israel during this time, uh, that would be your day's wage. You work a day, that's what you got, a denarius. But the interesting thing is on it is that Jesus goes on to ask whose image and inscription is on it. On one side of this denarius, and we would call the, the head's side, is a picture of, i got to find him now, Tiberius Caesar. And the inscription around it is, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. That's on the face side of the coin. Um, if you turn the coin over, it says chief priest. So in the Roman mind, Tiberius Caesar is not only head of state, he's also head of church in the Roman mind. Not church as we think of church, but church in the sense of the highest of the divinities that is here upon earth. You see a coin. You see a coin. Whose likeness and inscription is this? An obvious answer. They know. Caesar. Ancient coins were thought to be the property of the person whose picture and inscription were on it. So whosever picture, whosever inscription, Tiberius Caesar, that coin belongs to them. It's their coin. Their name, their picture is on it. It belongs to them. Give to Caesar what Caesar's. Who does the coin belong to? Caesar. Then if it belongs to Caesar, give it to Caesar. Now, there's one other thing about this denarius. The denarius is the tax that they're talking about. Is it rightful? Is it lawful? Is it moral to pay the tax that requires us to give this denarius. This was a tax that was levied on every citizen of the Roman Empire, man and woman. Not children, man and woman. So every man and woman who is under the Roman Empire must once a year pay this tax of the denarius. That is all the tax that Rome collects. And I'm thinking, Lord, bring us this tax, right? All I got to pay is one day's wage. The average United States citizen works until what? May now to pay their taxes? We're talking about one day's wage, one coin. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Well, who does it belong to? 
It's Caesar's. <laughs> Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. It's his image. It's his stamp. It's his impression. It is his seal. It is his inscription. This answer of Jesus sort of has over the years, especially in Western civilization, formed the, 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 the understanding, as it were, of a Christian's relationship to the state. Time doesn't allow us to go into all of that. Sometimes I think we read a little too much into Jesus' answer here. If we just look at it at the surface, he's simply saying the coin belongs to him, give it to him. And you probably got a hundred in your pocket, but he's only asking for one. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. But there is more to the answer, isn't there? And to God, the things that are God's. See, it's not only an answer that Jesus gives out of this knowledge of what is happening. It's not only the answer of the coin. It's also an answer of priorities. When Jesus says, and give to God's what is God's, he's not talking about tithing. He's not talking about, well, you know, some of your denarius, you ought to pay taxes. Some of it ought to go to tithing. He's not talking about free will offerings. He's not talking about, well, take up an offering to, to help the poor. Take up an offering to, to, to help with mission works. That's not what he's talking about. It's all about the coin. And it's all about the question whose image and inscription is on the coin. On the coin, it's Caesar's. But who is the image that you bear? Whose image is imprinted upon you? Whose inscription is upon your life? Whose seal is set upon you? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God that which is God's. In the image of God, he made them. Male and female, he made them. God has minted us. We bear, we bear the image of God in this world. We bear the inscription of God, chosen by him, justified by him, with Jesus Christ as we turn the coin around, our only mediator. We are the Lord's. Paul, in Ephesians, reminds us over and over again that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Holy Spirit has impressed himself upon our lives. We are held up to the world. And what are people seeing? The image of God, the image of Christ, the inscription of God. That's who we are. Jesus is saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. If he wants his coin, give him his coin. 
If he wants his tax, give him his tax. But your first priority is to give yourself. To give your whole being to the one whose image you bear. To live for his glory, to live for his honor, to live for his praise, to live in obedience to him. To do that which he desires for you to do, to love that which he loves. You've been minted, stamped, sealed. God's image is impressed upon you. Not only in your creation, but even more so in your recreation. For you are a new creature in Christ. You're a new coin. So when you're held up before the world, it is His image that the world is to see. It's His love, His mercy, His grace, His holiness, His perfections that our people are to see stamped upon our lives. Ever notice the intricate detail of the figures on a coin? It's really detailed when you start looking at it. That's a blurred image. Notice, no, but Jesus is standing there holding a coin and nobody has to say, I don't know, I can't see that. Caesar's. It's clear, even from a distance. That the image of Caesar is stamped and sealed upon that coin. It's impressed into it. People shouldn't have to look really deep into our lives to see that we belong to Christ. It ought to be obvious from a distance that we belong to Him. Do you notice how it ends? And they, what? What did they do? What does ESV say, these people who came with their question? What did they do? They what? Marveled. <laughs> you almost wonder if a little grin comes across the face of Jesus, right? They marvel at him. Why would a little grin? Go back. Go back to the parable of the tenants. The cornerstone. The stone that's been rejected has become the cornerstone. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Even these blind tenants see the marvel of Christ. They're left without charge. They're left without retort. They're left only to have their mouths hang open in amazement 
Someday, my friends, all the enemies of Christ, all the enemies of the church are going to stand with their mouths open, marveling at Christ. But too late then. But today, he again gives to you and me the gracious invitation. Today, don't harden your hearts. Today, marvel at Christ. Give him your whole being. We give thee but thine own. Whose image is bore upon my and your life as a believer? Christ. Who do we belong to then? We belong to our faithful Savior. Give him your life. God's people say, Amen. It is by grace that we've been made in your image. It is by grace that you've reminted us in Christ. And it is by grace that we turn to you and say, we give thee but thine own. In his glorious name, in the name that we truly marvel at, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, God's people say, Amen.